Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Jenna Ellis, and welcome to Just the Truth podcast, sponsored by the Thomas More Society, which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family, and religious liberty. You can find them at thomasmoresociety.org. The Democrat-led House passed legislation to make Washington, D.C. the 51st state. The vote was along party lines, and advocates for D.C. statehood are almost exclusively Democrats. But before we can even address the political question of whether it's a good idea to make D.C. a state, whether we should, we have to answer the fundamental question. Even if it were a good idea, can the Congress make the district a state without a constitutional amendment? Most of the debate around D.C. statehood is political, with both Democrats and Republicans arguing about representation, democracy, power grabs, even racism, to debate for or against this proposition. And this isn't a new idea. Proponents of D.C. statehood have backed initiatives since fairly early in our nation's history. But none of that actually matters. Congress does not have the authority to make the district a state through simple majority vote. And remember, with this constitutional analysis, I'm not advocating for or against D.C. statehood. I'm saying the Constitution doesn't allow it. Here's why. Statehood proponents correctly point out that Article 4, Section 3 of the United States Constitution gives Congress the ability to pass legislation to admit new states to the Union. This has been done 37 times since our Constitution was adopted. If we were debating adding, for example, Puerto Rico or splitting California into several states, and both of those ideas have been proposed, our constitutional analysis would be governed by Article 4. Again, you may or may not like the idea of adding Puerto Rico as a new state, and that's a fair political debate, but we have to go back to the rule of law in our Constitution first. The fundamental constitutional barriers facing the current proposal to make the district a state by legislation are two main things. First, Article 1, Section 8 gives permanent plenary constitutional power over the district, which has been upheld by the United States Supreme Court. That clause says this, Quote, the Congress shall have power to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever, such district as may by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress become the seat of government of the United States. The Supreme Court has held that this clause gives Congress permanent plenary power over the district. This means that while Congress can delegate various powers of what's called the Home Rule, it can take back full control of the district at any time. This is the exact same concept as state legislatures having plenary authority over the manner in which delegates are selected to the Electoral College under the Constitution in Article 2, Section 1.2. While states have delegated their authority to election officials and secretaries of states, I argued to state legislatures during the election integrity battle that state legislatures have plenary authority under the Constitution to reclaim their delegates. That's plainly obvious through the Constitution's text. 
So in the same way, because Congress can reclaim delegated authority at any time, making the district a full state with independent sovereignty would be an abrogation of power that the Constitution explicitly delegates to Congress alone. This would be an unconstitutional violation of the separation of powers. The Supreme Court has routinely upheld the separation of powers under what's called the non-delegation doctrine, the constitutional principle that Congress cannot delegate its legislative power to another branch of government. Under the same rationale, Congress likewise cannot delegate its plenary authority over the district to a state sovereign. Now, Congress could make the district smaller and define the seat of government smaller in size than it currently is. For example, ceding some residential area to Maryland or Virginia, if those states agreed to take it. That's permissible under Article 1, Section 8, because remember, the seat of government only cannot exceed 10 square miles. So why aren't Democrats proposing that if they're so concerned about representation or racism? It's because they wouldn't get two additional senators. So obviously, this isn't about we the people as they claim it is. It's just a political power grab. The second constitutional problem with D.C. statehood is the 23rd Amendment, which is an even bigger hurdle for D.C. statehood proponents. That amendment, passed in 1961, says this. The district constituting the seat of government of the United States shall appoint in such manner as the Congress may direct a number of electors of president and vice president equal to the whole number of senators and representatives in Congress to which the district would be entitled if it were a state." Unquote. This amendment refers to the district, the seat of government, as a permanent constitutional entity. The language, quote, as if it were a state, excludes any possibility of statehood. This should not be a partisan political question. It's clearly answered in, in, it's a clearly answered constitutional question. Justice departments under both Republican and Democrat administrations and the U.S. Supreme Court have affirmed that the seat of government cannot be transformed into an independent state sovereignty. Remember, our founders provided our system of government for a reason, to best protect individual rights and secure the most freedom and liberty for us. And they did this chiefly by separating powers. What you're seeing in Congress today is an attempt to outmaneuver the system that was designed to protect the rights and liberties for all of us. Federalist 43 gives us more insight into why the founders designed the district. James Madison wrote this, Quote, the indispensable necessity of complete authority at the seat of government carries its own evidence with it. It is a power exercised by every legislature of the Union, I might say of the world, by virtue of its general supremacy. Without it, not only the public authority might be insulted and its proceedings interrupted by impunity, but dependence of the members of the general government of the states comprehending the seat of government for protection in the exercise of their duty might bring on the national councils and imputation of awe and influence, equally dishonorable to the government and dissatisfactory to the members of the Confederacy. This consideration has more weight as the gradual accumulation of public improvements at the stationary residence of the government would be both too great a public pledge to be left in the hands of a single state and would create so many obstacles to removal of the government as still further to abridge its necessary independence. Madison is basically saying, imagine if the federal government were controlled externally by a single state. 
like California, New York, Texas, or Florida, immediately we would recognize the partisan control that would abridge necessary independence and the separation of powers. The founders, in their wisdom, saw fit to answer the political question of D.C. statehood by making it a moot point. So sorry, Democrats, you can't. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Just the Truth. And joining me now to discuss this uh, new Democrat proposition for D.C. statehood is my good friend and constitutional law attorney and professor, Michael Donnelly. So, Mike, uh, thanks so much for joining me. And I want to get your reaction initially uh, to this proposition of D.C. statehood because it seems like a lot of people, especially on social media, are really confused about the difference between the district becoming a state versus other territories or a state splitting into two things that would be governed by Article uh, by Article 4. Well, Jenna, thanks again so much for having me on. It's a privilege to be with you to talk about uh, this great governing document that we have in our country, the Constitution, and to talk with uh, an audience who I think is uh, one of the most informed and becoming the most informed because of your work about what the Constitution is and why it matters uh, to our country. And this uh, issue of D.C. statehood, I think you ended on the right note in your introduction there when you said, sorry, Democrats, you can't, uh, because it's really that simple. Um, if we want to know whether or not the federal government has the power to do something, uh, all we have to do is look in this handy dandy little guide here, the Constitution of the United States. This is my published by the Cato Institute, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States of America. Uh, and it's in you know English. And so it's not too hard to understand. Uh, and in there, it clearly says in Article 1, Section 8, what the District of Columbia is, uh, who controls it, and in your monologue, you pointed out so well the reason that it needs to always be under the control of Congress. And there's a lot of other things in here that Congress can do, uh, dozens of things that Congress has the explicit authority to do. Unfortunately, uh, we have come to a place which, to me, is it's really... Uh, it's kind of discouraging uh, where we have the United States Congress, uh, people who are elected to represent us, and they don't seem to understand what this document says. Either they don't understand or they don't care. Is it willful ignorance, malicious intent? Uh, I guess we could discuss that. I'm kind of curious. I didn't catch the debate today, and uh, I heard you mention some of the rationale that we're being De debated as to why you know we should do this, uh, but it's not permissible. It shouldn't be permissible, and we need to get back to looking at the Constitution and just asking the question, and especially our members in Congress, do we have the authority to do it or not? And if it's not in here, guess what? You don't. 
Mm -hmm. And that's such an important point and always the foundational question is that um, just like and the analogy that I always give is if uh, we're playing a Monopoly game, right? And there are a lot of different movements that, um, you know, if you're the top hat and I'm the Scotty dog, because I'm always the Scotty dog, uh, what, what different uh, moves we could make. If, you know, we roll the dice, we decide to uh, buy a property, sell it, put a hotel, whatever, there are different rules that govern those actions. And so while I may want to do a certain thing, if the rule book says, that I can't, then that's not even an option. And so what the Democrats are ignoring is the rule book, our U.S. Constitution. They're pretending that if they want to make a certain move to get ahead in monopoly and in our political system, then they can, they can do that. And they can just read and infer into the rules and amend them at will while they're still playing the game. And that's never a good idea for a rule of law because then it's not a rule of law at all, is it? No, it's not a rule of law. It's a rule of the mob or factions. And the founders saw this as a possibility. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about federalism and, and, and the relationship between the states and the federal government. Uh, but they saw this coming. Um, and you pointed out in the Federalist Papers, you know, some of the reasons why uh, Madison wrote about why D.C. needs to be uh, its own, you know, under the control of Congress makes perfect sense. And of course, we do have the authority to change the Constitution. And you mentioned the amendment that talked about, um, you know, other aspects related to this. Um, but we've got to consult the Constitution. And it doesn't seem like Congress does that. And that is really a problem. They seem to think that they can just do whatever they want, ignore the Constitution and get away with it. And it does seem that it's one party that tends to do this. And you've heard some people in that party talk about that they don't like the Constitution. Um, and that goes back quite a ways, actually, to where I would pinpoint some of the problems that we um, are encountering now that undermined this idea of federalism of the states being sovereign entities and the federal government being sovereign as well. And the federal government is, as our founders designed, a government of limited power and enumerated power. Um, I just made some notes from my, my readings to the Federalists. And as I teach my con law students at Patrick Henry College, I like to point to the Federalist Papers. Um, in Federalist 49, the founders write that the states have numerous and indefinite powers, whereas the federal government is one of few and defined powers. And where the Constitution defines powers, that means those are exclusive to the federal government, and that means the state can't do them. And, and there are also some overlapping powers as well. So it's, it's interesting. And we got to study the Constitution, and our members in Congress need to be—they should be experts in the Constitution, but— I don't think that's actually the <laughs> they, case. <laughs> they they should be, but you know they're they're playing Monopoly wildly out there. They're just totally ignoring everything. But um, so let's talk about the the practical aspect of this and and kind of dispel the myth of some of the rationale that was given by Democrats to say, well, what about representation? And you know why shouldn't there be two uh, senators that are from the District of Columbia? I mean, isn't this racist? Isn't this you know whatever? So when when the founders designed this system and the Federalist Papers, as we know, are uh, the arguments that three of our founders, all of whom were attorneys, uh, these are the arguments for the rationale of our system as designed. As you pointed out, Mike, um, there are ways that we can amend the Constitution, and we can do that if we see, hey, you know, this little thing needs to be tweaked. But overall, the system is designed to achieve a specific goal, which is to preserve and protect the most liberty and freedom for every individual, not to give more power to the government. The government has no right to power. It has, as you just said, specific limited 
delegated enumerated authority. So let's talk about why their myth of representation and racism, all other kinds of things, uh, is a myth and why the founders set up the district in the way they did. Well, certainly, you know, they spent a very hot summer in Philadelphia in 1787 trying to figure out what would be a good structure for our Constitution. And, and limited government is one of those principles. Balance of power is another one of those principles. And that's where we talk about the, diff the balance of power between the federal government and the state government. Remember, before the Constitution was the Articles of Confederation. And in that, each state had one vote. And you know, they, there was no national government in the sense that the national government acted on the people. The people were sovereign and everything was done through the states, by the states. And that caused some problems. And so they got together and decided, hey, we gotta work something else out. Um, and so you had this uh, debate over, do we wanna have a national government, a federal government? How do we balance the power between the states, which were sovereign entities, and creating some government that can help bind us together and, and, and be more efficient? And ultimately they came up with you know, dividing power, first of all, which is very important, separation of powers, of separating the executive power from the legislative power, from the judicial power to ensure that we did not have an accumulation of all power in the hands of a few, which the accumulation of all power in the hands of a few is the definition of tyranny. Uh, and so they separated the powers. And then within the separated powers, you had a, a debate over how to represent the people, but also the, the states. And so they came up with a compromise, which was, we'll have two houses. One was the House of Representatives, which was popularly elected. And the other were the was the Senate, which was a smaller body of 100, or well, at the time it wasn't 100, it was fewer than that, uh, two per state. And the Senate was supposed to represent the interests of the states. And actually, I, I wonder how many people actually know this, uh, the senators were actually appointed by the state legislatures until the 17th Amendment was ratified, which I would say was, was a real problem and has contributed to the undermining of the balance of power between the federal governments and the states because the states lost the ability to have their voices at states heard in the federal government when the 17th Amendment was passed. Right. And that's an important uh, point, not just for how the balance of powers has shifted, uh, but how we can, through constitutional amendments, even though you and I would certainly support repealing the 17th Amendment, that was a change in the design. But that's an example of, uh, of a way that we can change our system, but we have to do it through the mechanism that our founders provided. Congress didn't just pass legislation to say, hey, we're going to give uh, the ability for the states through popular votes uh, to the people to then elect senators. It had to go through that amendments process. It did. Um, it was ratified by three-fourths of the states. That's all in Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution. So this is why it's important, even if we debate political ideas, even if we all have different opinions on whether uh, we should have kept our original design with respect to uh, to, to senators, um, we have to go through that process. And we can amend our Constitution in ways that some of us don't prefer. We can uh, rescind amendments uh, if and, and change our process and our design. But what's also important here, Micah, before we go to the first break, it's very important to highlight, though, that the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, are specifically enumerated rights that even if those amendments were ever rescinded, that's simply telling Congress, hey, remember your enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8? Uh, those are things that are rights that specifically you can't touch. So even if 
the Second Amendment, for example, was repealed tomorrow, that wouldn't change the government's obligation to preserve and protect that right. It just wouldn't be enumerated anymore because that's the difference between rights given by God our Creator versus the design and specifically enumerated powers of government. Individuals have rights, governments have limited powers. We'll talk about this more when we come right back. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to Just the Truth, where we're continuing the conversation about the importance of understanding our constitutional design. And joining me is my good friend, Mike Donnelly, who is a professor of constitutional law at Patrick Henry College. And for those of you who don't know, I was a former professor of constitutional law at Colorado Christian University. And the reason that Mike and I love teaching this uh, subject and love talking about it is because we as Americans have to understand the rationale and the design of the Constitution before anyone can even talk about changing or amending it. You have to understand the political ideas and the attempts at changing it within the context of the original design and also the scope of American history. So, Mike, before the break, we were talking about the Bill of Rights, and I think we want to continue this line of discussion. Well, absolutely. And, we, you know, when we think of the Constitution, we need to remember the word Constitution really refers to the structure. Uh, the Constitution is our structure, the structure of our government. It lays out who has what authority, it divides the powers, it enumerates the powers of Congress. Um, and, and so, you know, when Congress wants to propose a, an idea, it needs to go to the, to the Constitution and ask themselves whether or not they even have that power. They don't like that because they want to be able to do whatever they want to do, many of them, unfortunately. And the only way to keep those people in check really is the American people by electing them out of office. But what do you do when the American people don't even realize it? And that's why I feel like what you're doing to educate your listeners and other people in the Constitution is an important step to kind of recovering what has been lost. Because if you don't understand how you've lost something, you'll never know back know how to go back and find it. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned the Bill of Rights. And a lot of people might not realize that the Bill of Rights was not part of the original Constitution. It's not. I mean, it's become part of the Constitution through the amendment process. Many of the founders didn't want a Bill of Rights because they were afraid that the Bill of Rights would become, through discussion and even the Supreme Court, some of the founders pointed out, as grants of power. And that's what we've seen. So the Bill of Rights was not part of the original understanding of the Constitution. It wasn't ratified with the Constitution. It was passed by the first Congress in 1791. And James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, both of them who were founders, were both against having a Bill of Rights for this reason. Now, Madison ended up changing his tune a little bit when he was running for Congress because a lot of his constituents were anti-federalists, and a lot of the anti-federalists felt that a Bill of Rights was absolutely necessary to ensure that the federal government, which they feared, a strong national government, would infringe on some of the, their most, um, you know, some of the most important rights that they uh, felt that needed to be protected from the federal government. So that's, that's kind of where the, the Bill of Rights came from. 
Right, and um, and this is why, by the way, Alexander Hamilton is uh, probably my favorite of the founders because of Federalist 84, when he goes on to really predict exactly the predicament that we're in today, when he says, you know, bills of rights in the sense that they have been advocated for in other forms of government are talking about when the people have ceded all of their rights in exchange for the protections of government. And that's not what our system is designed to do. We have a declaration of independence that our founders unanimously signed that said for the first time in world history, recognized the truth that our rights pre-exist government. They're pre-political. They come from God, our creator, not our government. So the sole legitimate purpose of government is to preserve and protect our rights. So our founders, even though they debated all of these things, they all understood the purpose of government and its legitimate role in civil society. And that's why you see that at the Constitutional Convention and even uh, Federalists versus Anti-Federalists, they can have all of these different debates, just like uh, constitutional law attorneys and politicians and political experts and even you know, citizens, regular Americans, uh, like everyone watching this program. We can all debate these ideas, and we should. But we have to start from the initial premise of what is our system designed to do, and then is this the best way forward? And so we amended our Constitution the first 10 times to uh, with the Bill of Rights that as Mike just pointed out, um, there were some of our founders that were against, but that didn't change the self-evident truth that our founders unanimously recognized of where our rights come from. And so as we're moving forward in this debate, whether it's DC statehood, whether it's uh, you know any other political question, we have to first out, uh, start with the question, can the government do it? But then also ask the question, should the government do it? Would it further the goal of protecting and preserving our rights and genuine liberties? And so Mike, as we're looking at how the federal government has obviously really, really grown, uh, Congress is far exceeding its bounds, then the question has to be asked, uh, what does federalism actually look like today? And how can we get our system more on track? Well, what does federalism look like today? Well, it looks like some states suing the federal government over things that they don't think they should be doing. Um, it, uh, you know, I mean, I would say that we've lost a lot of the, of, of the federalist character of our country. I feel that the federal government has absolutely grown outside of the boundaries of the Constitution, and we the people have allowed it. We've enabled it, and we've allowed it, and we need to go back. Well, we, we need to use the tools that we have to be uh, available to us to fix those problems, because the founders did not give us uh, a federal government that was supposed to be this big. So how did it happen? Um, and you look at how it has happened in each of the three branches of government that the founders uh, established, Article 1, Article 2, and Article 3, Article 1, the legislative power. You see Congress legislating in areas like the D.C. statehood that they do not have the constitutional authority to do. You see in Article 2, the executive branch, the president of the United States presiding over um, one of the largest administrative bureaucracies that, uh, you know, gets into determining, you know, what kind of fish, uh, you know, farmers can't kill and preventing them from farming their land to the miles per gallon that manufacturers can um, have their cars, have to have their cars meet. Uh, the kinds of things that, you know, what, what does that have to do with the federal government? Does it, is that in the Constitution? How, how do they do that? Um, and that's the administrative state. And it's like, how does the administrative state, the, the regulatory agencies, even have the authority to do that? That's a question we need to talk about a little bit. And then you look at the judiciary and the Supreme Court. And, you, you know, most people today, I think, would probably not even blink an eye when you say, 
uh, oh, the Supreme Court just overruled, you know, this law uh, that the state of Indiana just passed. And they're like, oh, yeah, of course, that's what the Supreme Court's supposed to do. Uh, no, that's not what the Supreme Court was founded to do. Uh, and when you, when you look at the structure of the federal judiciary, the Congress has a lot of authority over the structure of it. There only had to be one Supreme Court. Uh, but it was never intended to have the authority to strike down state legislation until uh, somehow in the uh, late 1800s, the court discovered that through the substantive due process theory that they found in the 14th Amendment, that they could do it and get away with it. And that power has ballooned uh, over the last hundred years, and it has caused a lot of problems, I think. Yeah, and you know, you had just held up uh, the pocket constitution, which we can still uh, hold our actual constitution in just a very, very thin volume. But the but there's really two different constitutions that our government is actually operating under today. One is the actual constitution, our actual rule of law, and then the second is the operation of the swamp in Washington. It's all of the Supreme Court cases uh, since 1803, Mar Marbury versus Madison, that the Supreme Court thinks it has the authority over. And so we've expanded the Constitution, interpreted it, defined it, read into it, uh, like Griswold versus Connecticut in uh, 1965, which basically uh, the Supreme Court thinks that it can find uh, different rights that emanate from what they call the vast penumbra, penumbra, literally reading between the lines of the Constitution to draw rights as if they come from the Constitution. We just talked about, no, they don't. They come from God, our creator, not our government. And then it can exercise jurisdictional authority to tell us when we and how we can exercise those. So we're operating really, Mike, as you always put it, um, which I think is a brilliant uh, way to characterize this, that the Supreme Court is acting like they're in constitutional convention every time they're sitting. The Supreme Court was not designed to rule over the states and strike down state legislation whenever they want to. Uh, and, and, you know, I'll tell you, there are cases that I like what the Supreme Court said uh, philosophically. And when you, when you go back and look at this, uh, there are things that I think the Supreme Court said that I would totally agree with. But I really think we need to have a debate in our country. And, you know, do we want nine justices, nine individuals who are not elected at all, have no electoral accountability, making decisions uh, that can override a state uh, law and really fundamental matters? Uh, which are not at all authorized to the federal government in the Constitution. So the first time the Supreme Court did this was in uh, 18, I think it was 1897, and it was in the context of economic liberties. Uh, the Supreme Court first interpreted the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment to find that um, where it says no state shall de deny a person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And uh, they, they interpreted that word liberty to mean the right to contract. Um, you know, due process... Up until that point, and even since then, has been debated. You know, due process means procedural rights. If the government's going to do something, put you in jail, take your property, they have to give you procedural rights before they do that. Doesn't mean they can't do it, but they have to give you an opportunity to object. They have to give you notice of what they're going to do, an opportunity to be heard, a trial of some kind. In, in criminal context, you have to get an, you have a right to an attorney. You have a right to not uh, be you know testify against yourself. These are some of the bills of rights. Uh, in the 10th Amendment. And the states had a lot of that as well in their own state constitutions. Uh, so, but the first time they did this was in the context of liberty. And the Supreme Court said, you know, if liberty means anything, it means the right to contract. And what that ended up doing was they ended up striking down state laws on wage and labor laws. 
And this was during the time of unions and unions were, you know, becoming popular and the states were passing laws to constrain the number of hours people could work, uh, the, the wages and things like that. And the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to allow states to do that. We're going to strike down these laws. And, you know, so they did that. And over a period of 20 or 30 years, they got away with that until FDR threatened to pack the court. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Oh, that's yeah. That's and and we're going to actually have to take a break here on that note. And we definitely need to talk about uh, the difference of what Mike's talking about between substantive and procedural due process. And all of these, of course, are constitutional law terms. But this is something that every citizen who cares about protecting and preserving liberty and freedom in this country, we have to understand our constitutional design. We can debate politics all day, but we have to start with the rule book. We have to first understand the rules, the design of our system, then we can talk about how best to do, to do that. So we'll be right back with more with Mike Donnelly here on Just the Truth. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? more confident, capable surgeons, and even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Continuing the conversation here on Just the Truth with my friend and a constitutional professor at Patrick Henry College, Mike Donnelly. And Mike, before the break, uh, we were just getting into FDR and court packing. Oh yeah, we're, we're talking about court packing today, aren't we? Um, Unfortunately, but F FDR threatened to pack the courts, and uh, that was over um, his desire to pass a national wage and labor law, the Federal Fair State Fair Labor Standards Act. Which you know, one looks in the Constitution in vain to to find you know where it says Congress can pass a law determining what people can make and how many hours. Uh, but as I was saying, the Supreme Court had used the Fourteenth Amendment due process clause to um, strike down state laws in the late 1800s. And let's remember what the 14th Amendment was passed for. The 14th Amendment was passed during Reconstruction right after the Civil War in response to black codes and you know the, the original real Jim Crow things that happened later where the slaves were being very poorly mistreated in the South and they were being deprived of life, liberty, and property in many cases without due process of law. And so the Congress said, this is not acceptable, so we're gonna pass this constitutional amendment. That was the purpose of the 14th Amendment primarily, to make sure that this, the freed slaves were citizens, uh, that they had the privileges and immunities of the, of the of citizens of the other states, and that they did not have their life, liberty, or property taken without due process of law. So fast forward 20 years, now the Supreme Court says, oh, look at this, there's this word liberty in, the sub, in, the, uh, in, the, in this uh, 14th Amendment. Well, that must mean we can protect the right to contract. And the, you know, the population didn't like that, and FDR threatened to pack the court, and, uh, and the court backed down and said, okay, we're going to say, yeah, the Congress can pass this law. And, and they have not really engaged. The court has not used substantive due process to strike down economic uh, rules at all. But what they have done is they've used substantive due process in other ways. And like I said uh, before, there are some things that the Supreme Court has used substantive due process, this idea that there is substance um, in, that is protected from government interference um, through the interpretation of the word liberty in this amendment, and not just allowing the government to interfere with any liberty it wants to, as long as 
it gives you due process, procedural due process. For example, uh, in the 1920s, Jenna, the state of Oregon passed through voter referendum a law that banned private education. And this was passed by the voters of the state. And they took it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, you know, words that I really like, the child is not the mere creature of the state and that the state cannot require uh, parents to send their schools to, to send their children to public schools only. I'm a homeschooling parent and I, you know, advocate for homeschooling. So I think that's really great. But I'm not sure that I think the Supreme Court should be telling Oregonians what they should be doing with their schools because people can always move if they don't like Oregon. Uh, fast forward, what has the Supreme Court done that I don't like uh, with the substantive due process? Well, there's a lot. You mentioned Griswold v. Connecticut, where the court interpreted this right of privacy, where um, in the context of contra contraception in Connecticut, it said, um, it, you know, Connecticut's law not allowing doctors to prescribe contraception is wrong. Well, OK, at that point, most states had already passed laws allowing people to get contraception if they wanted it. So the court fast forward to 1972-73, Roe v. Wade. Here the court is striking down uh, state laws on abortion and, and basically saying, well, we're going to decide when a, uh, you know, a child in the womb can be killed or not be killed. Fast forward to 2015 and Obergefell v. Hodges, the gay marriage case where the court said, well, we think, you know, substantive due process protects the right of, of men to marry men and women to marry women. So at that time, there were 31 states that had said, you know what, we think we should divine marriage as man and woman. And 12 states had said, no, we think it's OK for, for people to do this if they want to. That's the way our country was designed to operate, State where states decide for themselves. Not with a nine-person, constantly, continually sitting, you know, convention deciding, you know, what the Constitution means and then striking down state laws. So when we get back to this idea of court packing then, and, you know, you mentioned what happened with FDR, and we, uh, of course, have seen the 1983 clip when then-Senator Joe Biden called it a bonehead idea, which I happen to agree with, uh, of course, and he should stick to when he was actually a little more lucid. But uh, when we're talking about court packing, this is just a political maneuver. And so uh, what from the originalist design, Mike, because um, advocates would say, well, there's nothing in the Constitution that gives a specific number on the court. Conservatives have been for judicial reform. So why? what's the best constitutional argument uh, against court packing in your estimation? Well, I actually favor increasing the size of the Supreme Court myself. I have advocated for this and so have other conservatives. But there's a difference between increasing the size of the court and court packing. Right. And of course, we can call it what we want to. Like we call it court packing because we don't like it. The Democrats say, no, 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 we're just increasing the size so that there's enough justices to do their job and that sort of thing. Um, you know, the, the Congress has the authority under the Constitution to decide how many members there are on the Supreme Court. And so it is something that the Congress can do. Um, you know, should they do it? And how should they do it is really the question. Yes. What they shouldn't do is just increase the number so that Joe Biden can put four more liberals on the court because they don't like the fact that Donald Trump got to put three members of the court. That's not a good reason to do it. And so if they would do it in a way that respects the different views and, you know, maybe says, OK, let's have another nine and, you know, we'll stagger it over time or we'll let the Republicans pick some and the Democrats pick some and do it in a fair handed way so that you don't upset the balance of the court right now. You know, over time, you know, depending on who who gets elected or who doesn't get elected, you can affect the balance of the court. But you shouldn't be trying to affect the balance of the court right now, which was constitutionally determined.
Right, and there's actually another proposal out there um, in the context of um, the Article 5 uh, Convention of the States and uh, talking about increasing the state's authority uh, to select uh, justices rather than having the president appoint. Because remember, in our constitutional design, we can modify which branch has what power uh, by constitutional amendment. And so right now, where the president nominates with advice and consent of the Senate, that could technically be changed. We could have a rotating system where state legislatures get to nominate uh, and then have the Senate uh, consent or however we want to determine that if we increase the size. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we could do that. And I think your question, Mike, is really the most important question in terms of our constitutional structure. What is the best way to make sure that we have a Supreme Court that does its actual job? Because what we're seeing with this whole advocacy of court packing is just a political maneuver so that the Democrats can retain more power. That's a political partisan opinion. And the, the Republicans shouldn't do that either. I mean, this is something where we have to look at the design, the system of government to protect and preserve liberty and the separation of powers. That's what we all need to strive for. Well, the court was never intended to be this important. And it drives me crazy when presidential campaigns and, and, and you know political campaigns are campaigning on who they're going to put on the Supreme Court. It was never meant to be that way. Um, and, you know, when, you know, if people want to um, look back and, and, and read one of our founders who saw what was coming, they can read the Anti-Federalist paper number 15 by Brutus, who saw this coming 230 years ago or so, 40 years ago. Um, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, so we have about a minute left. Go ahead. Yeah. And anyway, so my point was, you know, the court was never intended to be this powerful. It has very limited and defined jurisdiction in the Constitution. It has it has grown beyond the boundaries of that jurisdiction by its own determination. And that's tyrannical when you look at the definition of tyranny, which is the accumulation of power in the hands of a few. And, and we should you know, it can all be let we should all be consistent and unanimous on that, that, that uh, concentrating power in one branch is never a good idea and can never protect and preserve liberty. So we're gonna talk in our last segment coming up with Mike Donnelly, the best tools that we have to get back to the original design and purpose of our system. We'll be right back. So what are the solutions to returning and restoring our system of government to functioning correctly instead of in this insane power grab and absolute tyranny? So Mike Donnelly, who's a professor of constitutional law at Patrick Henry College, has joined me for the program. And Mike, let's talk solutions. Uh, what are they and what tools do we have at our disposal? Well, Jenna, uh, you know, the problem is obvious. The federal government has outgrown its constitutional boundaries in all articles, Article 1, 2, and 3. And so we've got to use all the tools that are available to us to solve the problem. But part of un solving the problem is understanding how it was caused in the first place. And so we've been talking a little bit about that. Um, and one of the ways the federal government has become so powerful is it has vast sums of money that it, A, prints whenever it wants to, and, and B, takes from us whenever it wants to, whenever they can get a majority of the Congress to agree. Uh, and so money is a huge aspect here. And then it turns around and uses that money uh, to get the states to do things that the states don't have to do or that they shouldn't do. And so number one, uh, in the area of money, we got to go after the we got to go after the money, the line of money to these to the federal government. And the 16th Amendment of the of the Constitution gave 
Congress the authority to impose an income tax, which is a terrible idea. It was not constitutional at the beginning of the republic, and it shouldn't be constitutional now. And you know, so I think we would get a lot of people who would support that, although some people say flat tax. I'm for getting rid of the whole 16th Amendment, repealing it. Uh, the other thing is giving the states more of a voice. So you talked about before repealing the 17th Amendment. How can the states defend themselves if they don't have a voice in Washington, D.C. as states? So um, in terms of reforming the legislature, that's uh, one thing we can do. Um, the uh, Article 2, the, the judicial branch, this is a tough one because do we really think that if we put in different judges, they're going to somehow suddenly say, oh, no, we don't have the power uh, to control the states or to strike down state laws? They have put themselves into a box that they can't really get out of. And I know there's at least one justice on the Supreme Court who has talked about that. Clarence Thomas has questioned substantive due process and whether that's a good idea. But it would be, I think it would be impossible for the court on its own merit and under its own authority to just undo 120 years or more of substantive due process. That would require a constitutional amendment. Hmm. Well, um, and so the, you know, there's a lot of different uh, tools here. And I think that people uh, tend to say, okay, we just want one silver bullet. We want one thing that uh, can solve all of our problems. And as you're describing this, I want people to pay particular attention to the multifaceted solution here because we have to actually think a little more like the Democrats, right? Where we are being strategic in terms of incrementalism and saying, well, if we can change and modify one thing, that's a good start. Well, yes, absolutely. And I, and I just realized I said Article 2 before when I was referring to the judiciary, and of course I meant Article 3. Right. But Article 2 has gone way outside its boundaries as well. How many executive orders has the president signed? Um, and what authority does he have to do a lot of these things? He doesn't have any. And how has he gotten them? Well, there's this relationship between Congress and the executive branch. And Congress has delegated its authority, and the Supreme Court has allowed it to do so. Uh, and that should never have been permitted. Congress should never have been, been permitted to delegate its legislative authority to the executive branch, yet it has. And that's why regulations that are passed without Congress's review and approval, uh, according to laws that Congress has passed, but given over to executive branch appointees who pass these regulations. And there are vast, vast quantities of regulations that I, I mean, I can't even imagine the number of regulations, but that's something that has to be addressed as well. President Trump actually did a pretty good job, I think, of trying to rein that in over his administration. So there are a number of areas that we've got to work on. We've got to attack all of these areas. And it is a, it's a huge battle. Uh, and the states have to fight back. They've got to sue the federal government. They've got to try and find remedies in the courts. The states need to stop taking federal money, which obligates them to dance to the federal government's tune uh, in the yes. regulations. That's another thing they can do. So we've got to use all of these. And a convention of states would be one thing that we could also do to help rein, I think, rein in the Supreme Court and do some of these other things. Yeah, and so um, in the couple minutes we have left, I've been a vocal advocate for the Conventions of States project, and um, in particular, the resolution that's coming out of COS project. You can uh, see that particular resolution. There are different, uh, a lot of different Article 5 movements, which of course is just one way to get to a constitutional amendment. But I'm curious, Mike, um, in the context of how our state legislatures uh, in, in six particular states refused to look at the 
Constitution correctly and actually uh, do their constitutional duty, and they were majority Republican. Uh, a lot of the advocacy for the Convention of States Article 5 movement has been, well, hey, most of the states are controlled by Republican legislatures. Well, we saw how well that didn't work in the 2020 election. Do you still have the same level of faith and confidence in an Article 5 movement? I'm not sure I do. That's a very fair question. Uh, you know, it's it's the the Article Five movement for Convention of States has hap has moved very quickly. You look at balanced budget amendment. You look at term limits. The, it's taken them a lot longer. So I feel like the Convention of States project uh, has has really done pretty well comparative to the other ones. Um, you're right to be critical of the Republican legislatures in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania who failed to exercise their constitutional duty to review uh, the elections in their states. In Arizona um, and Georgia, don't let them off the hook. Yes, yeah, equal opportunity <laughs> yep. criticism of the Republicans, uh, absolutely. I, I believe we have to. It's absolute insanity to keep doing what we've been doing and expect different results. We've got to be innovative. We've got to use the tool the Constitution has given us, Article 5. We can't only use that. We've got to elect better people to Congress. We've got to fight in the courts. This is a huge battle across massive area of constitutional uh, terrain, and we've got to do everything we can in all areas. And, you know, I'm just a con law professor and, and one lawyer. Um, I would encourage someone to exercise leadership on this. Someone needs to be, you know, working on this. And there are some organizations, Heritage, for example, is doing some work on this. It's a huge battle. And this didn't happen overnight. The Republic did not get into these dire straits overnight. It took generations, and it's going to take generations to get out of it. And one of the most important things we can do is talk to our neighbors and educate our children. And Jenna, what you're doing with this show is a very important part of that. So thank you for what you're doing. That's it for this episode of Just the Truth. I'm Jenna Ellis, and we are sponsored by the Thomas More Society, which is a not-for-profit national public interest law firm dedicated to restoring respect in law for life, family, and religious liberty. You can find out more about the Thomas More Society and the incredible work that we do there at thomasmoresociety.org. And I will be back tomorrow and every Monday through Friday here on Just the Truth.